Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Bree and Donna and Kit Rocha and Moira Rogers, and that's four people, but it's actually just two. This is part two of our interview from RT, wherein we talk about books that they've enjoyed and also Nicolas Cage. And then I answer some listener mail about character descriptions, characters with secrets, books set in San Francisco. I got all kinds of cool email. There's a lot of books to recommend, too. You'll want to check out the podcast entry. This podcast is brought to you by New American Library, publisher of Fall from India Place, a steamy new romance from New York Times bestselling author of On Dublin Street, Samantha Young. You can find this book on sale wherever books and ebooks are sold. The music you're listening to, totally from Sassy Outwater, and I'll have information at the end of the podcast as to where you can find this song or others that you might enjoy because all the music she provides is great. And now, on with the podcast. So tell me about what you read and how you never agree on the same books and you don't like each other's reading taste. I don't even think that it's necessarily that. It's just I think that I, I'm i pickier, maybe. I, I don't even know. It's not even I that. Have, I have appreciation for crack that she does not. <laughs> yeah. Let's just, uh, you know. This I understand. So Very specific. Brief. Like Anne Bishop is my, my, my crack. That's the crack. Oh, yeah, I will will read just about anything she writes. You know, I've been reading her and I and everyone who follows me on Twitter knows this, because if you say Ann Bishop, I pop up. I appear. (laughs) Oh, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, My version of crack is like Julia Quinn. That's like my crack. I'm like, that's cracky. And a lot of people are like, what do you mean that's cracky? I'm like, it's sort of cracky, man. I mean, you know. No, I can see that. One of the things that I like about the Julia Quinn world at this point is that there are so many Bridgertons. (laughs) And now she's writing the Smith Smythe. Right, exactly. We got, you know, Zenobia Bridgerton and Ypsilanti Bridgerton. But there's Aardvark Bridgerton. (laughs) I guess she could go with Aaron instead. Aardvark. No, it has to be Aardvark Bridgerton. But when I read them, I'm like, this is the safest regency world yes. ever because yes. no none of these none nothing's gonna happen to any right. of these people because they're past yeah. characters and you can't kill them off the internet will come after you Absolutely. so it's it's a wonderful safe fluffy yeah. welcoming not right. fluffy in the sense that it has no substance but just yeah. very welcoming yeah. and soft and and it's and, like a warm fuzzy blanket yes that's you know that's my version that's of your crack, crack. Yeah. and and your crack is straight up crazy sauce high octane what the hell just happened <laughs> apparently yes yeah, horrible <laughs> dark messed up worlds where it's basically i like when i you know when i'm reading the crack i like the stuff where the bad the good guys are bad and the bad guys are so ridiculous they're not even scary because they're just caricatures i'm going to draw my mustache at you yes and you stay know, there i'm going to tie you to a train tracks don't move it, it is it's basically <laughs> it. you're moving i'm gonna kill you just stay there i have to wait for the can- despite having a perfectly good knife i'm gonna wait for the train to cut you in half yeah, that is that is basically, you know, I don't know, it's something that it's so ridiculous that I just love it because it's it's completely divorced from, you know, any sort of dark gritty realism or anything. It's just, you know, it is pure fantasy, but not in like the genre sense, but just in the the, <laughs> the reality <laughs> sense. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You you like the things that are so completely over the top. You're like, yeah. you know, when I not only just suspended my disbelief, like I expelled it and sent it to another country yes. for, this, for this book. <laughs> Basically. So I don't know if that means I like like the, the equivalent of like Nick Cage movies. Yes. <laughs> Put the punny back in the box. <laughs> 
put the money down. It was the worst southern accent I have. And I thought that James Vanderbeek in Varsity Blues had a bad southern accent. No, that was I don't want your life. No, no. (laughs) Nick Cage doing... I mean, I th- honest to God, I thought he was trying to sound like Elvis Presley. I used to live in Mobile, okay? I used to live in Mobile, Alabama, very close to where his character is supposed to be from. <laughs> People do not friggin' sound like that in Mobile, okay? They don't talk like that. <laughs> Put the bunny back in the box. <laughs> I'm going to think of that like all day. I'm going to start laughing randomly. People yeah. are like, wow, she's lost it. That fits because John Malkovich and all of like, the villains in that movie are so over <laughs> Top. He's sitting there. He's gonna shoot us stuff funny in the head. <laughs> Who does that? Like, so that fits. Yeah. And it's Nicholas like cages are. He's kind of ridiculous, but like, <laughs> if he tells me, <laughs> you have to qualify that. No. If he tells me, I can see the future. Which like wasn't that like he did like three movies in a row where he can see the future. Oh, I'm really? like that seems yeah. reasonable. I I'm actually crying. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm laughing so hard. Were these three related movies? No! Did he see the future just randomly? He went through a phase where he's like, I think I'm going to do movies where I can see the future. Well, you know how there's like a cycle with movies where you'll get movies where a kid and an adult switch bodies, and then there's always a cop with a dog, and so you go through these cycles of similar movies, there's always a couple of Nick Cage sees the future. Or Nick Cage is like a superhuman superhero in some way. Yes. <laughs> Bunny I'm, not included. I'm actually a little disturbed. What are these movies? I need to see them now. Just for reference. I'm going to tell everyone they have to go find... Have you ever seen Kid President on YouTube? Yes. Have you seen Kid President interviewing Nick Cage? No. <laughs> it is a video that exists and you need to go this, find it. This is a thing that has happened on the internet and I need to know about it right now. Yes. <laughs> because apparently I'm the expert on Nick Cage now. You need oh to adjust God, you your bio. You need to change your Twitter bio. <laughs> Ann Bishop Nick Cage expert. Somewhere. Someone sees the future about Nick Cage. <laughs> Somewhere Nick Cage just sat up and goes, I feel I must do something, but I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> Someone has proclaimed the Oracle. I have to find the Oracle who knows my life. Don't worry. If he doesn't know what to do, he'll just sit there and emote badly for a while. <laughs> he'll be fine. <laughs> I'm actually crying. Pulling it together, wearing mascara. <laughs> I have to interview Lisa Kleypas today, and you know she's like, like a makeup superhero. Yeah. She's a former beauty queen, and so yes. a girl can do things with makeup that I didn't know you could do with makeup. So I'm like, you know, I wore mascara, which is like my big step, and now I'm like, fuck, I'm gonna cry it all off. It's all over my hands. Oh, no. You can blame us. I'll blame them. This is fucking yeah. Nick Cage, man. <laughs> I'm telling you that bastard. Okay, so this is my favorite and most difficult question. What books have you read recently that you really, really liked, and and what did you like about them? I think the last book I read, Tessa's, Tessa, Tessa Dare. Yeah, it did Romancing the Duke. Yeah. I like Julia Quinn, I like Tessa Dare. No, Courtney Milan. I love her stuff. Yeah. I haven't had time to read her, 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 her latest one yet, though. Ugh. We do agree on Tessie, Tessa and Courtney. It's actually yes. very strange. Tessa Dare is like the person who we most agree on all the time. Yes. So she's sort of some magical Brie Donna whisperer. Oh, yes, I love her. <laughs> but, you know, she and, Te- she and Courtney both are very strong world builders right. in a historical yes. sense, especially because Romancing the Duke was all about fandom. 
that was a fandom and it was just the it was the it was the it was the love letter to people who are part of a fandom in some way and the best part was when they have the whole group of people who are so into the heroines books and the hero's like isn't it weird to dress up in costume dude's like in my real life i'm a barrister and i wear a wig how is that any different (laughs) this is not weirder sir yeah this is actually quite normal even though i do have a pot on my head it's it, that's all world building, so it yeah, kind of makes sense that that's something yes. that you love, and it's also internal conflict. Yeah. yeah so you really like Tessa Dare's *Romancing the Duke*, which is a wonderful book. It was so good. I love all her stuff because you know the world building thing. Yeah, the world building thing. It was people discount contemporary and Spencer historical world. Oh God, Mister Cove is a world she built. You know, she I like that, that world, world too. Love it. And she built it so that she could deal with the history. I mean, I'm not. I'm just like saying. I don't know if this is why she did it, but she built somewhere. It in Tessa Dare is like, God damn it, that's not right. But that's not what it meant. She oh. built it in a way that she could, you know, explore historical stuff, but also a lot of the, you know, the the relationships issues. between women and you know women's struggles in that time. Yeah. I know. wish because in the last book in that series. Um, any duke, any duchess will do. Mm-hmm. There's this carriage of her of her family that sort of shows up, and there's the woman who has cousin. the cousin who has a lesbian relationship yes. with a with a woman yes. who was their governess. And I was like, please write that, please, 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 write please, that. please, please, yeah. please, 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 please. And also in the Julia Quinn book, um, I I'm so bad with titles. I think it was the one that was not a cure song. The brother of the hero is the heir, mm. and he is gay, and he is not going to get married, and he is not going to have an heir, and so his brother is his heir, and the father is like completely twisted into madness, speaking of caricature villains. <laughs> but I want to read the brother's story. I want there yeah. to be a short story about the brother, because you know there yeah. were gay people in the Regency. Oh, yeah. Duh. <laughs> it's yeah. gay. Actually, gayness is something that we have all invented yeah, right we now. we invented hot sex. We invented gayness. We, we invented, invented pink, like, last week. Oh, totally. Yeah. BDSM, like, we made that up. Yeah, absolutely. Whips and chains, nobody was into that before, you know. There are absolutely no Victorian still images of um, sexual fetish. Not at all. And they're certainly not hot. If no, you not at all. Them, they're not blazingly hot. No, no they're – and that could actually be a really interesting cover art trend, black and white Victorian-style fetish photography oh. for erotica. Wouldn't that be great? I have just given you a merchandise idea. Take it and run. Become wealthy. I would be. What are you guys curious to try next? Do you have any ideas of things that you want to do? You're going to open a store? <laughs> develop a, a store. Develop a, like an actual physical. No, do, no, that no. would be. Oh, my God. What if you guys did like a pop-up store at next year's RT and then had buy invitation only swag from other people and then you could have people come in and we buy the physical merchandise. We can do that. We have a Shopify account. Yeah. And so we can just like put stuff on our iPad and you know, swipe. Yeah. Swipe. I you know what I want to do next year? I wanna bring the introvert isolation booth. Oh yeah! I want to have like one of the, and they're so fucking expensive because most sensory deprivation tanks require you to float in warm water. But I want to set up like a sensory deprivation tank for you know introvert recovery center and like (laughs) hey here's you know ten dollars you get fifteen minutes just go in and be silent here's a book bye I I want to do that at least like a dozen people last night who really could have used it. 
Oh, I have a, a white noise app on my phone that I use all the time, and one of the noises is crowd noise, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That's yeah. not relaxing. That no. makes me want to die. Oh, God, if I'm in a room hey, with a bunch of people, no! You know, I mean, you know what? You want to make me listen to water, so I have to pee every five seconds? Fine. Just not crowd noise. I heard what Donna liked recently, what she's been reading. What about you? What have you been reading? Um, my favorite thing right now, um, I'm a couple chapters ahead on... Melgene Brooks, uh, steampunk series. The Kraken, the Kraken King. The Kraken King. I was like the Kraken yes, Queen, um, the Kraken ship. It was a Kraken, Kraken. I, I pester her. Kraken oat brand. Kraken oat brand. Kraken oat brand. Oh my god. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Cereal <laughs> merchandise. Yeah. So I, I poke her until she sends the chapters ahead of time because I'm a horrible person. No, you are a very fortunate, lucky yes. person. Yes. I know. Are you like? I've read everything but the last chapter and the the, the seventh She's one. Here. Are you gonna go poke her? With I am. <laughs> I'm gonna text her and be like, "Okay, I'm coming for <laughs> chapter eight because chapter seven was so good." What do you like about the series so far? What are you enjoying? Oh, about? I just love everything. I love her. Like she's, she's. You know, I'm gonna just embarrass myself. I, I adore her steampunk series. I mean, I like the characters. I like how she thought. To actually make it so you can enter the series, it basically any book, mm-hmm. you know, she's built this crazy intricate world, and now she's exploring different parts of it. And you don't necessarily have to know all the previous characters. So if you didn't like the first book, you know, then you can like look at the second one or look at the third one or read the serial. And her world is an actual world. It is the actual globe yes. in the universe. Is earth all of it so you can take the stories can take place take place in very different parts of the world and she does and she goes to the different parts of the world and she i mean she must do you know incredibly detailed research i mean that's just i don't think many people world build like she does with the intricacy and the isn't it amazing how good world building makes such a difference in what you're reading it It makes such a creative difference in how you are absorbed into the story and how how well the writer can transport you into that universe I think the, the the contemporary parallel, aside from really good internal conflict, is what pe- a lot of people in um, fandom called competence porn, where yeah. competence porn, where you see the characters doing their job and they are incredibly competent, and I'll so you that all the time actually yeah. because yeah. it's like yeah, it's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's. I think that it's there's there's a reason why. We likened like the whole billionaire thing to you know the vampires and stuff, but lately I've I've really seen, uh, really what I call it is I call it the the silhouette desire effect, which is that you know uh, sometime in the I guess it was maybe like the late eighties or the early nineties they moved from featuring like blue collar type heroes in that line to, to closer to presents right like um they've got to be you know they i think something like you know they don't work at the construction firm they're the ceo of the construction firm was like part of their you know and you see the blue collar workers more in um the yellow one super romance right but now, like, what I've, what I've started seeing is it's more like people, you know, still want the heroes to be, like, super fucking rich. But, you know, they... they Wealth fantasy, them. especially in a bad economy, yeah. economy, is a powerful fantasy. Yeah, but they also want them to be able to, like, change their own oil in their car if they want to. So, you know, it, there, there's a bit of competence porn. Like, just being, you know, super freaking good and making money is mm-hmm. not really enough. No. Because it's kind of not, I guess, visual enough, maybe. Well, so, and I think most of the ways that you really realistically make lots and lots of money are kind of boring. Yeah. Well. <laughs> you know. There's that, too. 
and maybe morally bankrupt. <laughs> One thing that I find very odd, especially in the presents world, is that wealth is a very subjective a subjective thing. You know, how I consider myself wealthy may rest on having an income of $42,000 a year and yeah. having, uh, you know, health insurance. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, wealth is an entirely subjective right. con construct. And one of the things that romance focuses on is the wealth of healthy relationships and how valid or valuable a healthy relationship <laughs> is. So you got, you have, you start characters off with lots and lots of money. It's like, okay, we don't have to worry about any of your, you know. Yeah tawdry day-to-day -day shit. Let's take care of your shriveled, cold, horrible <laughs> internal self. Because you're an asshole. Let's fix that. <laughs> you're an asshole. Yay! I don't know if I can use that, but I might have to as the outro music. Oh, God! <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the interview with Bree and Donna. I want to thank them again for all of the time that they gave me at a really, really early point of the day at RT. I have another interview with Pharaoh Sean that has been completed but not edited, so you'll be hearing that one soon, and then it'll almost be time for RWA. So if you've got more people you'd like me to track down, you know what to do. Or if you don't know what to do, you can listen to the end of the podcast, and I'll tell you all of the ways that you can get in touch with us, including, if you're feeling it, passenger pigeons. But before we go, I have some email, because email is awesome. First, this is from Sci-Fi Girl. Dear Sarah and Jane, I just moved out to California and I'm looking for some books that take place close to my new home. I thought there would be a ton of books that take place in the Bay Area. I'm in Sunvale, a.k.a. the inspiration for Sunnydale at Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But most of the books I've found are in L.A., which is a whole other monster. I'm not really big on historicals that take place in the U.S., so I'd prefer contemporaries, especially romantic suspense or thrillers. Also, no vampires. I am so over them, unless, of course, their names are Angel or Spike. Now, oddly enough, Sci-Fi Girl, there are a bunch of California contemporaries, but it can be a little tricky to locate them when you try to search on list features on Goodreads. The first that comes to mind is one of my favorite books ever in the history of the universe, Instant Attraction by Jill Shalvis, which A, takes place in Tahoe, and B, is part of a three-brother series, all of which take place in the mountainous areas of California. The weird thing about California, aside from the part where your strawberries are red all the way through and you have all that good produce, is that when you're in the Northeast and the states are small and you can drive through like two of them in three hours, you forget how freaking big California is. Like you could be driving for six hours and it's still California. That's incredible. So there's a lot of places where you can set books. I have come up with a few options. And if you have suggestions and if you are listening and you want to write in with ideas for Sci-Fi Girl, you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com and say, duh, you forgot this book set in San Francisco. But here off the top of my head are a couple. First, Instant Attraction and the other two books in the series. Suzanne Brockman's Tall, Dark, and Dangerous series, which most of which take place in San Diego. Lisa Marie Rice's book, Hotter Than Wildfire, also takes place in San Diego. And the L. Kennedy Out of Uniform series, which I think there are eight or nine books, which are super hot erotic, those also take place in Southern California. But you said you were in San Francisco, which is a whole other area. There is, of course, a whole list of paranormal romances set in San Francisco and historicals, which is not what you asked for. But because I know that Carrie has reviewed books one and two in this series, I should point it out to you anyway, just in case you're curious. Jen Bennett 
has a series called The Roaring Twenties. The first one is Bitter Spirits and the second is Grim Shadows. They are light paranormal historicals set in 1920s San Francisco. So you have... 20s culture along with prohibition and some very mild paranormal elements all mixed up in one series and Carrie says they're really awesome and I wish to read them as soon as possible. There are a lot of paranormal that are set in San Francisco. There's a whole list of them actually on, on Goodreads but you said you didn't want paranormal so I'll stop with bitter spirits. The last one that comes immediately to mind is all of the small town contemporaries from Robin Carr and Susan Mallory. Those are all set in California. Some are in the Sierra Nevadas. I think Robin Carr's are up in a different set of mountains, but I can't remember exactly which ones. I'm sorry that I can't remember. But I know that most of those are California romances. And like I said, if you have a, duh, Sarah, you forgot this one, idea for a contemporary romance set in San Francisco or the surrounding area, you can email me at sbjpodcast and I will update with that request in a future podcast. Moving on, I have more email. I got a lot of email actually. It's freaking awesome. This email is from Cecilia. Dear Sarah and Jane, I have been listening to your podcast for a couple of weeks now and I have to thank you and your guest because I am enjoying it so much. You are so welcome. I usually listen to it while I work and it helps me relax and concentrate to listen to someone talk about books. I have only recently started to read romance novels, though I've been fascinated with them for a long time. Thanks to your podcast and your respective website, I'm putting together a very long TBR list. I've read four Mary Baylogs in a row, then The Duchess War by Courtney Milan. Now I'm reading Flowers from the Storm by Laura Kinsale. I know Baylog's name before, but I'd never been able to discover the other titles if not searching the web. Apart from the Rex, I also appreciate the podcast for the thought-provoking discussions, such as the voices one hears while reading. I'd never considered such a thing before. Here are my questions, if I may contribute to the discussion. Do you imagine characters as they are described in the books? If a character's physical description is not the very first thing that introduces them in the story, I tend to imagine them one way, and often I stick to that image even after the official description. Do you adapt your mental image to the official description, and do you imagine characters as handsome as they are often described? Jane and I have talked about this on and on, on and off rather, for a little while in a couple different podcasts, and both of us really dislike the intrusion of being told that a character looks like a certain celebrity, because what if you don't think that celebrity is good looking? The other thing that's interesting is that, as I've said, I like my men short and dorky, and I've known my husband since high school, since he had a mullet, and we both had bad skin. So my concept of hot is very different from other people's and everyone's concept of what is really attractive is unique. So yes, I absolutely adapt my mental image to my own preferences. And if there's an official description, I might even ignore it. Like I'll get as far as his hair was brown and I'll be like, that's good. That's all I need to know. Next sentence. I don't necessarily imagine characters handsome or unhandsome. I usually think of people as more interesting looking that are fascinating. So when I have this book in my imagination, I am going to usually imagine a character who's interesting looking, but not stunningly, staggeringly handsome with, you know, cheekbones that you could ski on. I don't love it when there's a lot of physical description. In fact, one of the things that really intrigues me about the book that Jane was recommending to me last week was the fact that there isn't a lot of physical description and it's the character's inner personalities that define who they are through the course of the story. I am all over that. The last thing I want is for someone to look in the mirror and describe themselves to me. Like, I don't care that much, really. I'm, I'm more than ready to imagine my own preferences. And I just presume that everyone else is too, but maybe, maybe we're unique in that. I don't know. 
Cecilia continues, I don't particularly care for secret pasts or hidden backgrounds in a character's storyline, but judging from blurbs and reviews, they seem very popular. Do you particularly like them? Nope. Sure don't. And I have a really simple reason. It's a question of weight. So if you have a character that has a secret or a secret past or a secret baby or a hidden background, part of the tension between the two the two characters, the hero and the heroine or the hero and the hero or the hero and the heroine or all six of them, whatever, part of the tension between them is the fact that one of them knows the secret and the other one doesn't. And when the other one finds out, it may change their perception or their opinion of the person who is carrying around the secret. So the secret or hidden background or what have you has to weigh enough that it is going to affect the opinion of the person who learns it, but it can't be so heavy that the person who learns of the secret never wants anything to do with that character ever again because it's a romance and that's not how they end. So if you have a secret that is worth keeping, ultimately it may weigh so much that you don't believe that the other character is like, yeah, it's okay, I'm over it, no big deal. But con conversely, if it doesn't weigh enough, if it doesn't carry enough plot import, if it doesn't have enough of an effect on the plot, then what's the point of keeping it a secret in the first place? One thing I really have a problem with, and I know I'm not alone in this, is secret babies. I know there are people who love them some secret babies. That is a big secret to keep, and it affects more than just the person who's keeping the secret. And I have a really hard time with a valid reason for keeping a child secret. The exception usually being, dude, I totally thought you were dead, and that's why I didn't tell you I had your baby. And surprise, you're alive, so let me introduce you. I'm, I can understand that. If you, some, if you think someone's dead, clearly you're not going to tell them all of your secrets. Or you can. You just assume they're not going to do anything with them. Otherwise, major secrets like that, a secret baby, in my opinion, is, is an example of a secret that is so heavy that once the secret is discovered at whatever point in the story, either early or in the middle or late, that is so big that I don't even know if it's possible for, for me as a reader to sufficiently develop and explain and work through all of the things learning that secret is going to create in between the hero and the heroine and, 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 and people who surround them. So yes, secret pasts, hidden backgrounds, not my favorite thing, unless they're spies, that's totally different. But yes, they are also very popular. It is not my favorite thing. And it is it is actually kind of a turnoff for me. But a secret from her past may tear them apart forever. And I'm like, yeah, okay, moving on. It doesn't do it for me either. So you're not alone. And really, I can promise you, pretty much anything about the romance genre that bothers you, you're not alone. No way. Anyway, Cecilia says, I'm sure I had more questions, but I've conveniently forgotten them when this mail threatened to become even longer. Dude, email us anytime. These are great questions. Thanks again for all the entertainment you provide and greetings from Italy from Cecilia. Cecilia, I hope that you are eating all of the good food because I really want to come to eat Italy and just eat everything twice. But, you know, that has nothing to do with romance novels. This last email is from Michelle. Hi, Sarah and Jane. I have another question about romance. I notice that you both read category romances. I have shied away from them, thinking they are of inferior quality. And I've tried reading a couple, but stopped after the first chapter or so because the writing was so cheesy that I could not read on. Am I being a snob? Am I missing out on some good reads? Why do you both read category romances? Is it because there are truly good books out there in category land? Or is it because you want a specific theme or trope or element that is guaranteed by a certain publisher's line of books? 
or because you run out of single title romances, is this possible? I would like to know the advantages of reading category romances and am open to being persuaded to try one again. Thanks, Michelle. Michelle, there is an entire category on my website, which will actually soon go away because the redesign does not have room for such a category, but it's called A Thousand and One Ways to Eat Crow. Sarah reads category romance. A long time ago, I had the very same opinion about category romances. I did not like the fact that at that time the titles were all sort of interchangeable. The billionaire playboy in the bedroom tycoon secret mistress baby boardroom. I mean, it was like a bunch of words that would like be recycled. And I did not like that. Now, of course, it turns out that those titles actually worked really, really well for a readership that understood what it was that those titles were saying. For me, when you're using the same set of 60 words, I can't remember any of the titles. So when I go to look up my favorite category romances, I can never remember the titles if they are comprised of hook words. The worst is a Maya Banks title that I still cannot get right until I do some incredible amounts of searching. I think it's Tycoon, Maya Banks Tycoon, Maya, um, aha, here it is. The Tycoon's Rebel Bride. It's out of print, but if you can find it, it's lovely. And of course, I have other recommendations for you. And fear not, you do not have to grab a pen and scribble maniacally, especially not if you're driving. I will write about each of these books in the entry for the podcast, and I'll have links to each book so you can figure out if you want to buy them. And you should probably might want to try one or two because they're awesome. Okay. The first author I want to recommend is Kathleen O'Reilly. She's not writing as of right now. I hope she comes back to romance publishing. She has a pretty spiffy book called Hot Under Pressure, but my very favorite of hers is Sex Straight Up. And it's not the world's greatest title, but what makes Sex Straight Up really, really unique is that it is about a hero whose wife died in 9-11. And it's a Harlequin blaze, which means it's pretty steamy, but it, it had some serious emotional weight to it. And what's weird is that the, the, the back cover copy doesn't even talk about the fact that the hero is a widower. One of the things that's really interesting about this is the way in which the heroine learns about his late wife and how much in her shadow she feels like she is because she died so tragically and is in so many very public memorials. That is a really good book. It's really powerful. But Kathleen O'Reilly's books in general are very smart and very funny, and I like them a lot. Kathleen O'Reilly was writing for Harlequin Blaze, which are contemporary with a little bit more overtly sexual content. Another author or a couple of authors that I love in the Harlequin Presents line are Sarah Morgan and Kate Hewitt, especially. I love Sarah Morgan. I love Kate Hewitt. Their books are really good. And the thing about Harlequin Presents is that it's very much a wealth and travel fantasy. The heroes are very, very wealthy. And there are a ton of very innocent heroines. The settings are very opulent, often in Europe. There's usually a great deal of travel involved. Their passports get a workout. But all of the writers who are frequently writing in the Harlequin Presents line, you would probably really enjoy Sarah Morgan, because her heroines are very, very smart. Kelly Hunter, who also has some very smart, smart heroines. There are a few other authors you might want to try, like Maisie Yates or Lynn Ray Harris or Lucy Monroe. But usually if someone is just starting out looking at category, I usually say try Sarah Morgan. Not only are there a lot of them exploring lots of different tropes, but there's a lot of emotion in each one. 
The challenge of category is that, I think it was Nora Roberts who said it's like dancing Swan Lake in a phone booth. You have the full arc of the story, you have the full emotional journey of the characters, and a much smaller word count. And the thing about reading a category is, because of the shorter length, you can enjoy it in a slightly less amount of time, but if you really like that particular setting or that particular trope, there's going to be more because one thing categories are really good at is isolating and identifying tropes and then reinventing them in different ways. There's also the thing called continuity where a bunch of different authors will write a series that takes place in a common location or all in the same family. So then you get all of these different people from very different points of views, especially when they're all like one big royal family. And in Harlequin Presents Land, like in many other real-life places, the royal family is a complete hot mess, no matter what mythical country they're from. If you have category recommendations for Michelle, you are welcome to email me. You're actually welcome to email me about anything you want. You can email me and Jane, especially if you want to tell Jane she's wrong, because I secretly enjoy that very much. Because I'm a giant schmuck. But anyway, if you want to email us, the email address is sbjpodcast at gmail.com or... If you're feeling brave, you can call our Google Voice number at 1201-371-DBSA. Don't forget to leave your name and where you're calling from so we can work your message into an upcoming podcast. But I'm not going to use the message I got from a Yellow Pages directory assistance inquiry. I could not figure out for the longest time what book this person was talking about until I realized that it was a spam call. So I won't subject you to that one. If you like the podcast, you can also subscribe to our feed. We're on iTunes as the DBSA podcast. We're on Podcast Pickle, and we're also on Stitcher if you want to try Stitcher. And that's a relatively new service, so I haven't fully worked out all the kinks. However, I think it's pretty awesome. I hope you like it. This podcast is brought to you by New American Library, publisher of Fall from India Place, the steamy new romance from New York Times bestselling author of On Dublin Street, Samantha Young book is available now wherever print and ebooks are sold and if you like the music that we're listening to that's awesome because we like it too the music is provided by sassy outwater this track is called snug in the blanket by three mile stone which is a group comprised of marla fibish aaron schrader and richard mandel you can find this song and other songs off of this album from Three Milestone in many locations where you can buy music, and I will link to all of them in the podcast entry. Let's see, I covered the email address and where you can find us and how you can listen, and the music is awesome, and New American Library is pretty cool too. I think that's everything. Wherever you are, Bree and Donna and me and Jane and everyone else I mentioned and people you don't even know, we all wish you the very best of reading, and thank you for listening.